Hi, everyone, and welcome to 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense. The two Golden Age radio shows, Escape and Suspense, were radio's leading anthology series of high adventure and drama, with Escape airing on CBS Radio from July 7, 1947 to September 25, 1954, and Suspense continued to 1962. These two shows presented great American-made radio drama, which became the foundation for TV. Radio, as you know, is purely acoustic, with no visual component, and it relied on great scriptwriters and actors to enable the listeners to imagine the characters and the story. It was high drama, great acting, and terrific stories. As one of the shows say, all designed for you from the four walls of today. Here we offer the very best of escape and suspense. We hope you enjoy this week's presentation. And if you do, send us a kind review for 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense. And now, our two stories. You are speeding through the Turkish night on the Taurus Express. You are alone and unarmed. And somewhere on the train is a calm killer from whom you must escape. Escape. Produced by William N. Robeson and carefully contrived to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. escape to Turkey and the Taurus Express which carries a shipment of death as Harold Lamb told it in his exciting story Three Good Witnesses I took the Taurus Express that night because I was going home back to the United States, back to California, and my routine job at the oil company. Two days before, I had given my final report to our State Department man in Istanbul, a negative report. Then, Mr. Ward, your considered opinion is that there is no oil in this area? Not enough to be worth drilling for. Not at this late date. The war would be over before we could get out 10,000 barrels. Yeah, you're being optimistic, Mr. Ward. War isn't over yet. Who can say when it will be? That's true, but... Uh, uh, what does Arvark say? He agrees with me completely. So does Wyndham, the British engineer. We're all agreed. Mm, three good witnesses, hmm? Well, then that settles it. What do you mean, three good witnesses? Oh, that's an old saying out here in the Middle East. Come from the Arabs, I think. In their old law, the testimony of three independent and trustworthy witnesses was enough to establish the guilt or innocence of an accused person. But, uh, why Three? Well, I suppose two witnesses to a crime might tell the same lie. But if three fellas tell the same story, well, then it must be true. Well, maybe. I suppose the odds against three making up the same story would be high, but I don't know whether I'd like to trust my neck with that kind of justice. Yeah, it is a little different from justice back home in Chattahoochee County. <laughs> um, yeah, I imagine you want to be getting back to the States as soon as possible. Indeed, I do. Well, I can put you on the Taurus Express Wednesday... You'll be in Cairo by Saturday, get an ATC plane, and have you in Washington just three days later. Istanbul to Washington in less than a week. It's a small world, isn't it? (laughs) 
So I was booked on the Taurus Express leaving Istanbul on Wednesday night. Got to the station late, and as I walked down the long platform toward the first-class carriages, I sensed a tenseness in the crowd. First, I couldn't explain it. Then I noticed that the platform was alive with police. They stood at the door of every car, motionless, solemn-faced, carefully scrutinizing everyone who got aboard. And it seemed that everyone on that bustling platform was aware of them. Well, I found my car near the front of the train. A policeman stood at the open door. I paused to verify the car number, and suddenly I heard a voice at my elbow. I thought I had missed you. A pair of arms twined around my neck. A pair of lips were kissing me. I pushed her away to try to see her face, but she clung to me. I tried to say something, but she kept talking so fast I couldn't get a word in. How could you do this to me? To run off without even saying goodbye? I must be with you right up to the last minute, my darling. At last I could see her, and she was beautiful. Very young and very beautiful. Turkish or Greek, I couldn't tell which, but lovely. You must let me get on the train with you. See you safely to your compartment. I cannot bear to see... Madame, I'm afraid you're making a mistake. Please, please, you must help me. I will explain. But I... Come, you will miss the train. I will see you safely on board. Come, hurry, so we may say our last goodbye in privacy. This last was thrown over her shoulder to the policeman standing there as she pulled me up the steps into the car. He stared at us, but he said nothing. And in a moment, we were standing in the deserted corridor. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. Now, look here, young lady. What is all this? It is the fault of those police standing out there. I could not get into the car alone. But why not? This is a first-class car. Only rich foreigners ride in first-class compartment. I could see by your clothes you were American. I knew you would help me. But uh, why did you want to get into this car, especially? Because I... Suddenly she stopped, and her eyes were riveted on something behind my back. I turned to see a swarthy young man staring at us from the other end of the car. He was dressed in the uniform of a train conductor. He slid open a compartment door. There was an almost imperceptible jerk of his head, and then the girl slipped past me and into the open room. The conductor slid the door shut after her. Your number, sir? Huh? Oh, oh yes, yes, sir. Twelve. Yes, the next one. Here. If there is anything I can do for you, I shall be pleased. If you care to leave your ticket and passport with me, I shall be able to attend to Syrian customs without disturbing you later. As he talked, his eyes were not on me. He was watching the slow progress of a policeman through the car. The officer was walking by, glancing into each compartment. When he came opposite us, he spoke to the conductor. The conductor was standing squarely in front of the door of the girl's compartment, hiding her from view. The policeman walked on. In a moment, he had disappeared. Uh, Thank you, sir. I shall not disturb you. I went into my compartment. My baggage was already there. The train was about to leave. Everything was in order. But I couldn't help wondering about the incident I had just witnessed, about the girl I had involuntarily helped and the conductor. I wondered about all those police out there. Obviously, something was going on. (laughs) Then I remembered. This was Istanbul, the gateway to the Middle East. It was supposed to be alive with Axis spies. Could that girl be... (laughs) Then I laughed. (laughs) Just my overage, stay-at-home mind imagining things. Then suddenly I heard a voice in the corridor outside. The The voice was unmistakably American and music to my ears. 
I jumped to my feet and stepped into the corridor. There outside the next compartment was a young man, in civilian clothes, carrying a small bag and a briefcase. The swarthy conductor was approaching him with a worried look. How about this, huh? There's a dame in my compartment. Beg pardon, sir. There must be a mistake. This compartment number 10... Naturally, you think I can't read? Number 10, that's mine. But number 10 is not sold. It is not marked on my list. The heck it isn't. I've got my ticket right here. What's with the dame? Please, not so loud. I don't get this. Uh, I... I beg your pardon. Uh, can I be of any help? Huh? Oh, you're an American, too. Yes, Humphrey Ward, Los Angeles. Tom Hatfield. Glad to know you. And what's with the dame? Do you know? No, I, I'm Please, afraid... gentlemen, step into the compartment, please. But the girl... Please, I... in. Yes? Okay. Well, I... I... Please, sir. Oh, well, all right. He epithet. He inna. Fasaria. Hey, talk English, huh? What's all this about, anyway? It is... I am embarrassed, sir. Oh, you're embarrassed. I buy a ticket and find a dame in my compartment. Of course, on closer inspection, maybe I'm not so mad after all. She looks like a good deal. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Oh, you do speak English. Sir, the policeman will come by. Maybe look in. I must ask of you a favor. Yeah? If she could stay here, just until the train started... She will not bother you after that. Well, why can't she stay in her own compartment? Please, sir, I have no place else to put her. All the other places are taken. Oh. She's a deadhead, huh? Deadhead? No ticket. Stowaway. It is something like that. Well, what's the setup? She your girlfriend? You... No, no, it is not like that. It is... You see, we're both Macedonian. She is escaping from the Nazis. She wants to go to Cairo and join the nurse corps. Uh -huh. She has been for two years in Greece under the Nazis. Mm -hmm. She's a real patriot. If you will help her. Maybe if you introduced us and let her speak for herself. She's I... called Mara Dallas. Well, let's make it Mary for short. Mary the deadhead. Hi, Mary. Hi. You're okay. Get her. She talks American. I spent two years at the American school at Thessalonica. I worked with Red Cross in Greece during the fighting. That's so? I like Americans. I want to go to the United States. Who doesn't? I want to learn to be a real nurse. You will help me. Americans are always kind. Mm -hmm. This gentleman here helped me get on the train. Naturally. Now you will help me. Okay? Uh, okay. Uh, thank you, sir. Now, I must go before the policemen get more suspicious. Okay, this may turn out to be a pleasure. Looks like you don't need me. I'm in the next compartment. Maybe we'll get together later. Sure, sure. I'd offer you a seat, but we're sort of crowded already. Mary and me. <laughs> I went back to my seat laughing. <laughs> laughing mostly at the silly idea I'd had that maybe Mary the deadhead and her conductor friend were spies of some sort. <laughs> Obviously, they were harmless. As harmless as, as I was. And that was completely harmless, confound it. I looked out of the window as the train slid out of the station, leaving Turkey, leaving the war, going home, back to complacent safety. Men were out here fighting and dying, and they'd get no help from me. Me, overage and useless. <laughs> I felt pretty sorry for myself. It wasn't until the next day that I began to get acquainted with my fellow passengers. Mary the deadhead was riding on the conductor's jump seat to the end of the car. The Aruvians, an Armenian couple, were in 14, the compartment next to mine. Young Tom Hatfield was on the other side of me. And uh, two Greek refugees, a Mr. Shiniara and a Mr. Drika, were next to him and eight. Hatfield kept pretty much out of sight all day, and it was Mr. Chiniara who shared a table with me at dinner that night. 
I didn't much care for him, but he was somebody to talk to. Uh, you Americans, you do not realize how lucky you are. No, I suppose not. You do not know what it is to be safe. Just look around you. Almost all the passengers on this express are refugees. All of them would pay much to be going to the United States as you are. I suppose so. But yes, where else is there any security for us? But you, sir, and your young friend are always secure. Wherever you go, you are always safe. But it is not so for us. Well, I suppose we do take a lot for granted and... Oh, here's, uh, here's Hatfield now. Uh, Hatfield, won't you join us? Thanks, no, I'll just sit oh, over no, here. Oh, no, no, I insist. I was just leaving. Uh, you must join your friend. Oh, really, there's no need... I insist, please. Okay. Well, thank you, Mr. Chiniara. It's been a pleasure. And for me, sir. Good evening. Good evening. Take it easy. Well, I haven't seen much of you today. Been resting, eh? Something like that. You ordered? Yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll call the waiter. Never mind, he'll be back. Who's your slick-haired friend? Oh, uh, Mr. Chiniara? Uh, he's a Greek refugee, just escaped from the Nazis. Everybody out here just escaped from the Nazis. He was saying how lucky we are to be Americans. <laughs> I guess they don't see many of us in Turkey these days. I guess not. I haven't seen many of us myself. Funny, I didn't run into you in Istanbul. I wasn't there, just passing through. Oh. I thought I'd have met you at the American mission or somewhere. No. I... I'm out here for the State Department. Oil. But I haven't had much luck. Now I'm going home. Too bad. Yeah. Plenty of things for us Americans to do out here, though. Like, uh, oil and other things. Of course, they... They give the unimportant stuff to has-beens like me. Leave the good stuff for young fellas like you. Okay, Mr. Ward. Hmm? What? Okay. I'm Tom Hatfield, Frankfort, Kentucky. White, Protestant, 26, unmarried. No, I'm not a draft dodger, and no, I'm not AWOL. And yes, I'm here on business, which is none of yours. Well... I'm a captain Air Force... Two years overseas. You might say officially I'm on a holiday. The fact is, I'm taking this train to Adana, where I get off at five tomorrow morning, cross the border, and catch a plane that's waiting to take me to Cairo. Anything else you want to know? Oh, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I didn't. No, no, no. Sit down. Sit down. I'm sorry. I guess I'm getting on my own nerves. Forget it, will you? Oh, it's nothing. You needn't think that. Riding on trains is kind of bad for a flyer. It makes me jumpy. I understand. And you must have already been through a lot. Yes, I do understand. I was in France in 1918. I know what it's like. Maybe you know better than I do. Oh, I wouldn't say that. But I envy you. I'd give anything to be in it. You're lucky you're not. Oh, I know, I know. But it's no fun being old and useless like me either. I envy you. I can tell you're doing something important. You can? How? By the way, you're so careful with that briefcase. Carry it around with you all the time. You've got it on your lap right now. Probably got something important in it. Dispatches or something. So you noticed that, did you? I hope nobody else on this train is so observant, Mr. Ward. Oh, you're pulling my leg. What difference would it make anyway? You never can tell. On a train like this, out here, you never know. Oh, you mean... you mean spies? Well, I wouldn't... Well, but why? I haven't seen anyone who looks suspicious. Spies are never suspicious-looking, Mr. Ward. They're anybody. Anybody who wants to make a quick buck and doesn't care how he does it. This train is alive with people like that. But, but who? Well, just take, for instance, Mary the Deadhead. She's young and pretty, yes, but she's broke. And her shifty-eyed boyfriend, the conductor... Oh, but they're Greeks. She's a refugee. So she says. But didn't it seem strange to you that he put her in my compartment by mistake? My name wasn't on the list, so he said. Were you satisfied with her story? Hmm. 
Well, for a moment, I... I was suspicious, but I... You can't take too much for granted. Well, for instance, the story I just told you. I might be a spy, mightn't I? That whole thing might be hogwash. Well, no. You're American, I know that. Who else would say hogwash? No matter. I could be an American traitor. There are such things. Oh, but... but Or you might be the spy. Yes, they even look like you. Meek and mild Casper Milk Toast. (laughs) Their cover stories are pips. Like telling you they're out here looking for oil. They strike up a conversation, ask questions, and notice briefcases. Oh, but look here. Now, surely you don't think... No, I don't think anything. I only say, you never can tell, Mr. Ward. He was kidding me, of course, pulling my leg. But I didn't really mind. I liked him. And he had a right to be cocky and flip. He was doing something for the war effort. Even though I knew he was kidding me, I went to bed thinking about spies and I fell asleep dreaming of them. Then very suddenly, I awoke with a terrible sense of urgency. There was something that I must do. I looked at my watch. It was ten minutes to five. The train was dark. Everything was quiet. Yet I felt I had to get up. I started to put on my clothes. It didn't make sense. But then I remembered. It was Tom Hatfield, not me, who had to get up at five, leave the train at Adana to cross the border into Syria and take his plane. Those dispatches must be important if he had to change to a fast plane as soon as he got out of neutral Turkey. When I stepped into the dimly lit corridor, it was deserted. I knocked on Hatfield's door. No answer. I tried the handle, and the door slid open into darkness. Something was wrong. I switched on the light and went in. Tom Hatfield lay there on the bunk asleep. Hey, Hatfield, rise and shine. We're coming into Adana. You've got to get off. I shook him, but he he didn't move. Then I saw blood on his pillow, on his head. I looked around quickly. The briefcase was gone. Kivorkian! Kivorkian! Is something wrong, sir? Did... Did you see anybody go into number 10? No. Nobody. Who should be going... Look, look. Do you have keys to the doors? But no, there are no keys. They lock from the inside. A sliding bolt and chain. Nobody can get in once they're locked. Yeah, that's what I thought. I knew Tom Hatfield would have locked that door. Somebody must have gotten in some other way and left the corridor door open as a false clue. But how? Then I noticed the door which connected with number eight. I tried it. It was locked. This didn't make sense. But through my mind was racing one thought. American dispatches have been stolen. Tom Hatfield is out and it's up to me. I searched the room. I found an automatic under the mattress, but no briefcase. I heard the train start up again. We were leaving Adana. I looked again at the connecting door. Then I got it. The bolt was fastened on the other side of that door. But on this side, it was not. That meant that someone could have come in through number eight. I knocked on the connecting door. I heard a movement, and the bolt slid back, and the door opened. I was face to face with Mr. Chiniara. And he was staring at the gun in my hand. What is it? What is that for? The briefcase. The bag of my friend. Is it here? Briefcase? Bag? Oh, we have here only our valises. This door has been opened. Something is missing. Oh, if you have lost something, I pray you to look. I know nothing of it. (laughs) Come in, please, and look. All right, I will. I'm not accusing anyone, but I just want to be sure that... 
next thing i felt was a stinging coldness on my face a rushing of wind i realized that i was hanging half out of the window of the car they were shoving me out of the train savagely i kicked i felt something give and i pushed myself back in slid down on the floor felt something hard under me the gun in the dim compartment i saw them coming at me chiniara and rica i raised the gun Mary, the deadhead, took me into Hatfield's room and carefully administered first aid to my cuts and bruises. But Kevorkian and Hatfield were busy in number eight. What? What are they doing? Never mind. Pay no attention. Oh, but they're throwing the bodies out of the window. Think not of it, please. Hayek Kevorkian is a Macedonian. When he fought the Germans at Thessalonica, he threw bodies over the cliffs. He knows what he's doing. Oh, but I... I... But you, you are a brave man, too. Even if you are not Macedonian, you would be judgment tried for two, three years in spite of your age and your innocence. It is better to have no bodies. What's that? Be quiet now. The border police. Well, we got the room cleaned up just in time. Number eight, Giniara and Rika. He has their passport. I forgot. Giniara and Rika, they are not here. I, I uh, can tell you about Giniara and Rika. This man here, Mr. Ward, he is American general in disguise. Secret service. He put Giniara and Rika off at Adana with a pistol. They were spies. Good heavens, he'll never believe that. Never mind. This man is a Syrian. He does not care what happens in Turkey. But do you have any Syrian money? Oh, oh yes, yes. Here. Here in my wallet. Good. Give it to me. Thank you. Now, come with me, Sergeant. Do not worry now, Mr. Ward. In a moment, Haiki Vorkin will have those passports. We will throw them out the window and there will be no trace. And to think, Mary, I thought you might be drawing down an Axis paycheck. It is no matter. Now we are out of Turkey. Before long, I can go to United States. Maybe that might not be so easy. You got no money, no passport, no transportation through the combat zones. Never mind. I shall do it. I walk to here from Macedonia. I can walk all the way. Like St. Paul in the Bible walked to Rome. Well, I wish you luck, but you'll have a time getting by British control at Aleppo. We can't smuggle a pack of cigarettes past them. Oh, but then, then what about me? What about a murderer? I don't know. We'll see. It was morning when the train pulled into Aleppo, the station where British control came on. The trip had been pretty awful, with Tom trying to act as if nothing had happened and with me staring into that empty room, 
imagining Chiniara and Rika sitting there, staring back at me. Maybe they had been spies, maybe not. Now they were dead, and I was in trouble. We knew that the minute the train stopped. A soldier stood outside our window and said, All right, now. Everyone reminds of this place in this car. We waited silently for many minutes. And then a British major in khaki shorts stepped in. Behind him, I saw Kivorkian and Mary the Deadhead standing in the doorway. Good morning. I'm Radcliffe. I'm looking for two missing passengers identified as Greeks, Chiniara and Drikar by name. <laughs> Come now. They, they seem to have been in the next compartment. In here. What became of them? Were there two? Hmm. Young lady. Yes, sir? You weren't in number eight, were you? You don't seem to have any other place. Nor a Syrian entrance visor. Please. I sat down in the corridor. Oh, yes, quite. Conductor, don't you remember two passengers booked through to Aleppo? One was quite stout. Book dealer who escaped from Greece ten days ago. The ah, other... those. They descended from the car at Adana. One was fat with slick hair and, and the other... Yes, yeah, yes. Really. I say, isn't that a bullet hole in the wall up there? And you, sir, Mr. Ward, isn't it? How did you hurt your forehead? I, uh, uh an accident, sir. I bumped into oh, a... Oh, yes, quite. I should tell you that the Armenian couple in number 14 heard shots just after passing Adana. They were so frightened they locked themselves in until now. It's no use. I, I shot them, both of them. They hit me first. Please realize that I'm not joking. My orders are to find those two pseudo-Greeks wherever they may be. Wait a minute. You said pseudo-Greeks? You mean, Major, you want to find them? And how, as you Americans say. But why? Because we're advised by Istanbul that certain Axis agents have been working out of the Balkans with identifications as refugees. These two, Tiniara and Drikar, were on this train. A man on the train saw them throw something out at Adana. They hardly threw themselves out. No, we did that. Your man at Haida Pasha tipped me off to expect trouble. Oh, really? So they were agents. Certainly they were spies. I knew that. No Greek would be fat like Chiniara after only one week escape from the Germans. And no Greek would have hair oil from Paris. Well, that being the case, will somebody start telling the truth? I will. This mild little gentleman, knowing nothing of the war and fighting, he kills you two men in a gunfight. Like, uh, how do you say, nobody business. And now, please, he's still suffering from shock. So will you please give him a plane direct to Cairo where he can rest? And this American courier, he is late with dispatches. He must have a place in the plane too. And, and since I cannot enter Syria without the passport, will you please... Put me also on the plane. Because in Cairo, I can get a job as nurse with the Ella Greeks from Macedonia who are there. And and maybe God will then give me a way to go to America like he passed St. Paul through the Taurus Gates. <laughs> Is it a deal, Major? Three places on the first plane and you have your men like the Royal Canadian Hoosies, only dead. Hmm. The plane could be arranged, of course, if... All right, Mr. Ward. Tell him. Tell him. With the eyes of that amazing girl on me, my courage came back. I told him my story. Completely. Every detail. He listened carefully, took it all down in his pad. 
And afterwards he said... That story, Mr. Ward, is not one bit of evidence to support it. By your own statements, the evidence of the, is buried in the snow on the slopes of the Taurus Mountains. Nuts. I tell you, I helped chuck it out. And I examined the two men. I am a trained nurse, and I said they were dead. And for identification, I, a soldier of Macedonia, can swear that their passports were the men you say. Mm. Very well. I'll ring the ad room. The evidence of three good witnesses is sufficient. Escape, produced by William N. Robeson and directed by Norman MacDonald, today brought you Three Good Witnesses by Harold Lamb, adapted for radio by John Dunkel, with Morgan Farley as Humphrey Ward, Jack Webb as Tom Hatfield, Janet Nolan as Mary the Deadhead, Harry Bartell as Kevorkian, with Barton Yarborough and Jack Crucian. Music was conceived by Cy Feuer with Eddie Dunstetter at the console. Next week... You are alone in Paris, unable to speak the language, unable to cope with a gigantic conspiracy which seeks to convince you that you are mad. And you know you are the victim of a plot from which there is no escape. Next week... We escape with Alexander Wolcott's version of a modern folktale, The Vanishing Lady. Goodbye, then, until this same time next week, when again we offer you Escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special, limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001stories at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. The Adventures of Christopher Wells program, formerly scheduled at this time, is now broadcast at a new time on Tuesday evenings. Tune in for The Adventures of Christopher Wells next Tuesday and every Tuesday at 6.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Thank <laughs> you.
alone in Paris, unable to speak the language, unable to cope with a gigantic conspiracy which seeks to convince you that you are mad. You are the victim of a plot from which there is no escape. Escape. Produced, directed, and tonight written by William N. Robeson. And carefully contrived to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight we escape to Paris at the time of the Great Exposition and one of the recurring legends of our time in Alexander Wilkett's version of the story of The Vanishing Lady. Another cup of tea, Bruce? Uh, no, thank you, my dear. I just light up my pipe now and have a look at the evening standard. I'd like another, please, Mother. All right, Alice. Uh, uh, uh. Only one sugar, oh. dear. We must watch our figures, you oh. know. <laughs> what nonsense. A growing girl like Alice needs plenty of sugar. <laughs> See, Mother, Daddy approves. Perhaps. But Mother is still boss. Yes, Mother. There's a dear. Mother... Yes, dear. I've been thinking. Yes, dear. I've been thinking about my grandparents. Oh. I know all about Daddy's parents. How Grandfather Stanley commanded a dreadnought at the Battle of Jutland. It was not a dreadnought, Alice. It was a heavy cruiser. Oh, yes. Heavy cruiser. And he got the VC, and how Grandmother Stanley was a volunteer nurse at Westerl Arch when the Zeppelins came over. And I know about your father, too, and how he died in India from his wounds, and... How gallant he was at the Kuiper Pass, but... Mother? Yes, dear? You've never, never told me anything about Grandmother Winship. Haven't I? No, and I'd... I'd like to know something Bruce. about... Bruce. The child's 16. I think it's time she knew. But, Bruce... And you'd probably feel better to get it off your chest. What, Mother? What is it? Well, my dear... I've never talked about your grandmother because I... I've always half believed that someday, somehow, she would come down our garden walk and... I know it sounds silly. And explain where she's been for the last 20 years. Why? What happened to her? I don't know. And I don't suppose I ever will. Cynthia, darling, if it's going to upset no, you... No, Bruce, you're quite right. It would be best to get it off my chest, as you put it. As you know, Alice, I was born and brought up in India. And I was about your age when my father was killed in the Kyber campaign. Mother decided to leave India for good and return to her old home in Warwickshire. However, since it was necessary for her to go to Paris to attend to some details of my father's estate, she decided that we should leave the P&O boat in Marseille and proceed by train. You may imagine the timidity with which we two unescorted ladies traveled across France. Without the slightest knowledge of the language, and without indeed assurance that we could find a hotel room in Paris. Though we had telegraphed for reservations from Marseille. You see, the great Paris exposition had just opened, and the city was jammed with visitors from all over the world. You may imagine our relief when we arrived at the Grand Hotel Universel, 
and heard the clerk speak in quite ah, understandable English. Welcome, welcome. You will please to sign the register. Air and air. Uh, you have our reservation? Oh, indeed, yes. Most fortunate, madame, that you telegraphed. For I have reserved for you the last room in the house. Oh, I'm so relieved. Here, Cynthia. You may as well learn now to sign a register for yourself. Oh, yes, Mama. Where do I write? Uh, there in that line. Oh, yes, I see. Voila. You are uh, fatigued from your journey, uh, no? Uh, I shall have the boy show you to your rooms at once. Uh, chasseur, uh, chasseur! Oui, monsieur. Le parpent 342 pour mademoiselle et madame Winship, tout de suite. Uh, bien, monsieur. Uh, this is your baggage, madame? Uh, yes, these six. Uh, le voile bagage, Simple. il y a six pièces. You'd best carry the little one with the medicine in it. Yes, maman. Uh, thank you. I'll take that one. Uh, the little red one. Très bien. Uh, this way, ladies. Keep your eye on that porter, Cynthia. I don't trust this Frenchman. Oh, Mama. I don't think he'll make off with our things. Uh, here's the lift. Troisième étage. Troisième. Oh, I do wish we could have gone straight on to Southampton. But you'd only have had to come back across the channel to see the solicitor, Mama. We really saved time this way. I suppose I mean I wish we hadn't come to Paris at all. It's such a sinister place. Oh, Mama. Voilà, le troisième. Uh, this way, ladies, uh, to the right. Attendez. Eh bien. Voilà. Entrez, ladies. Thank you. Oh, what a lovely big room. And look, Mama. French windows. And the park out there. Oh, that is uh, no, and thank the square you. with the statues yeah. on. Merci. It. Oh, and look thank at the you, river ladies. over there. And those beautiful, beautiful bridges. Oh, Mother, it, it's something out of a book. Yes, my dear. That's the trouble with Paris. It's so attractive. But underneath, it's evil. And look at the furniture. The gilt clock. And this lovely marble table. Oh, Mama, everything is so... so French. I'll be very glad to be on my way to where everything's English by this time tomorrow. Now, come away from that window and help me get into something comfortable. There's a dear. Yes, Mama, of course. I don't know when I've been so tired. I just can't seem to catch my... <gasps> Mama. Mama, what's the matter? Mama! Mama, speak to me. Here, I'll get you up into the bed. There. Now, let me loosen your corset. Here. Here, Mama, here are the smelling salts. Breathe deeply, darling. Mama. The telephone. I've got to get a doctor. Hello, operator. Will you please send a doctor up to room number... Oh, let me see. Number 342. Pardon? Qu'est-ce que mademoiselle Will you please send a doctor to room number 342? While I waited for the doctor, I did everything I could to think of to bring my mother back to consciousness. I massaged her fingers and toes. I put wet cloths on her forehead. I waved the smelling salts under her nose. But she lay silent and white and unmoving like one dead. Only the quick, shallow movement of her breast assured me she was not. And all the time, another anxiety possessed me. What if this doctor could not speak English? How should I tell him the circumstances of Mother's unexpected fainting? How should I understand his instructions for treatment? I'm sure it was not long, although it seemed like an eternity before he arrived. 
accompanied by the manager of the hotel. And to my great relief, they both spoke English. The doctor felt Mother's pulse, took her temperature, and did the usual things that doctors do. Then he turned to the tail-coated hotel manager. Parle-t-elle français? Pas un mot. Vous en êtes sûr? Oui, tout à fait. Alors, je ne peux parler à mon aise. Monsieur, ceci, c'est une affaire très sérieuse. N'ayez pas l'air alarmé lorsque je vous mets au courant. Cette femme est atteinte de la peste. De la peste. Elle n'a qu'une heure à vivre. Je n'ai pas besoin de vous dire... While they talked in this language, I couldn't understand. I looked from one face to the other, trying to read from their expressions how serious my mother's illness was. But they were as casual as though they were ordering dinner. Finally, I could stand it no longer. They must... You must tell me! What is the matter with her? Mademoiselle, your mother is ill, yes. Seriously ill. It is a collapse. Due perhaps to the strain of travelling... Uh, however, a week of, or two of absolute rest A week will... or two? We were to go on to England tomorrow. Well, that would be out of the question. She cannot be moved for at least several days. Right now, she must have a complete rest. The next 24 hours will be critical. Oh, Mama. Poor Mama. Now, no, Mademoiselle, you must not break down, too. I need your help. Yes, Doctor. Immediately, I need some medicine. Will you fetch it for me? I... Yes, I but... must not leave your mother for a moment during these critical hours. Here, I will write down this address and a little message to my wife. Your wife? Yes, I have the medicine already prepared at my home. It will be faster to go there for it than to a pharmacy. There are a few chemists who have the ingredients. But couldn't you telephone? Oh, alas, I have no telephone. Well, then, a, a messenger, perhaps. Oh, mademoiselle, you do not know Paris en fête. With the exposition opening, nowhere can you find a reliable messenger. They are all selling uh, souvenirs. No, mademoiselle, you will accomplish the errand more rapidly yourself. Ah, voici l'adresse. Here's the address, 24 bis rue Val-de-Grâce. And here is the message to give to my wife. But I don't know Paris at all. I'm a total stranger here. I'm sure the manager here will... Uh, Give the necessary instructions to the cabbie? Indeed, I will. If mademoiselle is ready... Before I quite knew what was happening, I was seated in a rickety taxicab outside the hotel, with the doctor's message clutched in my hand, while the hotel manager ah, gave non, a voluble direction to the cabbie. Prenez la piste la plus circuiteuse, et surtout ne soyez pas de retour en moins de deux heures. Entendu? Entendu. Bon. It is arranged, mademoiselle. Jacques here is one of our most trusted cabbies. He will get you to the doctor's house and back in safety. Oh, thank you so much, sir. And you will look after mother, won't you? Oh, indeed I will. Of that you may be sure. When we left the hotel, we crossed a huge square with statues around it and turned into a wide avenue which led up a gentle incline, at the top of which was a huge arch. But before long, we turned off to the right into narrower streets. It must have been 20 minutes later when we turned into another wide boulevard, and I saw another huge arch up ahead. Or was it the same arch? Driver! Mademoiselle! Haven't we passed that arch before? Uh, regardez, mademoiselle, voici l'arc de triomphe. Là-bas, la tour Eiffel... Uh, driver, I don't want a sightseeing tour. I want to go to this address directly, don't you understand? Please, now take me there at once. Uh, en fait, sans mieux. De la patience, mademoiselle. Paris, uh, c'est une grande ville, voyons. At 
last we turned into a narrow street and pulled up before a grim grey house. The blue enamel sign on the wall read number 24 Beast. I jumped out of the cab almost before it stopped, rushed up the three stone steps and pulled at the brass bell knob. Oh, hurry. Hurry, hurry, please. We? Oh, oh, the doctor sent me for some medicine. Here, please read this. Retenez cette jeune femme aussi longtemps possible. C'est de la plus grande importance pour l'avenir de Paris et même de la France. Oh, entrez, mademoiselle. Thank you. Quand vous ne pouvez plus la faire The doctor's wife stood there reading and rereading the note as though she didn't understand it. And until I thought I would scream. Oh, please, please hurry. Get the medicine. It's my mother. She may be dying. I must get back to her. Please hurry. Asseyez-vous. She pointed to a chair. Attendez. And slowly walked down the hall and closed the door behind her. I waited. And waited. And I wondered. Wondered about the time the taxi had taken to get here. About that arch that looks so familiar. And I was torn by the hundred nameless anxieties that torture you when your nearest and dearest is ill. And then I heard something that froze my blood. A telephone. A telephone clearly ringing somewhere in the house. But the doctor had said he had no telephone. That was the reason I must come all the way for the medicine. No, it, it couldn't be in this house. It, it must be next door or across the street. Of course, that's where the sound was coming from. Hello? But no. It was the voice of the doctor's wife answering the phone. Oh, no. No, what monstrous plot was this? I felt my scalp crawl with terror. Brain pounded. My head felt as though it would burst. I wanted to scream, to run out of this awful house, to run all the way across Paris to the bedside of my mother. Voilà, mademoiselle. <gasps> oh, thank you. Thank you. Au revoir, mademoiselle. Now, driver, please. Please, in the name of your own mother, hurry back to the hotel as fast as possible. Please. Bah oui, on fait de son mieux, mademoiselle. Roulant. But my pleading was of no use. Either it was misunderstood or ignored. We crawled across Paris just as slowly as we had come. And I was certain I saw that same white arch three times. But at last we crossed the great square with the statues in it. And I knew we were close to the hotel. Please, please hurry. Just beyond the great square, we turned up a narrow street, which shortly ended a wide circle, in the middle of which was a tall, slender monument. The driver swung around the monument and pulled up before the entrance of the hotel, reached back and opened the door. Voila, voila, mademoiselle. I jumped out of the cab. And then I saw the sign over the entrance. It said, Hotel Ritz. Driver, you've taken me to the wrong hotel. I'm staying at the Grand Hotel Universal. Mais non, mademoiselle, je vous ai pris en Ritz. Et je vous dépose en Ritz, il y a 50, 50 au I don't understand what you're saying, but will you please take me to the Grand Hotel Universal? Mais c'est ici que je vous ai pris, et c'est ici que je vous dépose. Oh, you stupid, stupid man, can't you understand? My mother is ill. You've taken more than two hours to get me to that doctor's house and back. Can't you understand? My mother is sick, perhaps dying. Dieu, mademoiselle, les affaires ne me regrettent pas. Donc, voici, A small group of passers-by had stopped and were listening curiously to the argument. Then they joined in and started taking sides. Everywhere I looked were foreign faces, strangers, enemies. 
and then shouldering his way through the crowd, I saw a bareheaded young man in tweeds with a pipe plant in his teeth. And before he had a chance to speak, I knew help had come. Uh, I say, having some trouble? Oh, thank heavens, you're English. All oh, right, you are. Uh, what seems to be the matter? I told him rapidly as I could, and he paid the mulish cabby. Merci, monsieur. Popped me into another cab, and five minutes later, we walked into the lobby of the Grand Hotel Universal. The manager was behind the desk. My mother, is she all right? I beg your pardon? My, my mother, Mrs. Winship in 342, is she all right? Uh, Mademoiselle must be mistaken. There is no Winship in 342. What? 342 is occupied by Monsieur Auguste Noailles, a permanent guest. Don't you remember me? I'm Cynthia Winship. Two hours ago, you put me into a taxi to go to the doctor's house for some medicine for my mother. I am afraid that Mademoiselle is mistaken. I have never seen her before in my life. Well, look here, what is this? No, listen, I swear it to you. It's just as I say. We signed the register less than three hours ago. We got in on the train from Marseille. Well, let's have a look at the register. Yes, I'll show you I'm in 342. Where is the register? It is there, Mademoiselle. You may see it for yourself. See, today's date. Fourteen guests registered, but I don't see any mademoiselle or madame Winship. Do you? No. What have you done with my mother? What have you done with my mother? Please, mademoiselle. You have done something Please, with my mademoiselle. Demand. I should not have done with my mother. Mr. Winship, we'll get to the bottom of this. Uh, perhaps mademoiselle is mistaken. Perhaps she is registered at some other hotel. No. This is the hotel. The Grand Universal. You... You were standing there when we arrived. You handed my mother the pen with which she registered. You came to the room with the doctor. You put me in the taxi. But I assure you, Mademoiselle, these are fantasies uh, of wait, your imagination. Wait a minute. What is it? That bellboy there. He carried our baggage. He'll remember. Uh, garçon. Uh, oui, monsieur. Vous vous souvenez à le bagage de madame à numéro 3, 4, 2, cet après Non, monsieur. There were six pieces, don't you remember? You wanted to take them all, and I insisted on carrying the jewel case. I it was a little red one? Oh, no, mademoiselle. C'est la première fois de ma vie que je vois, mademoiselle. This is never saw you in his life before. But this is monstrous. It it's impossible. My mother is somewhere in this hotel. What have you done with her? What have you done with her? <laughs> Now then, how do you feel, Miss Winship? Better, thank you. This soup was very nourishing. Well, won't you have something else? A salad, a bit of roast? Thank you, no. A cup of tea, perhaps? Certainly. Garçon? Monsieur? Uh, un tasse de thé pour mademoiselle. Tout de suite, monsieur. I don't know how to thank you, Mr... Do you realize I don't even know your name? <laughs> it's Bruce. Bruce Stanley. I'm glad to meet you, Mr. Stanley. It's a pleasure, Miss Winship. Mr. Stanley... You believe me, don't you? Of course I do, Mr. Winship. We did register at that hotel. We were in room 342. I, I can even describe the furnishings. There was a big window that went from the ceiling to the floor. Well, every hotel room in Paris has windows like that, Miss Winship. Oh, they do? Yes. Well, in this room, the draperies were plum-colored. There was a marble table, a uh, black marble it was, and a gilt clock. It had run down. The hands had stopped, I remember, at 20 minutes past three. The walls were covered in, in rose brocade, and the bedspread was a washed-out yellow... Oh, if I could only get into that room, you'd see I'm not making this up. I'm no, not. I'm sure you aren't. Perhaps I can find a way to make them let you in the room. Oh, can you? Well, yes, I, I'm i with the embassy, you know, undersecretary sort of thing. 
I, uh, I believe the British Empire has enough influence to change the mind of an obstinate Paris innkeeper. Then let's do it. Right away. Well, I, I'm afraid the might of Britain can't move that fast. It's past dinner time. But tomorrow we'll see. Tomorrow? But I must get into that room tonight. I have no money. Nowhere to sleep. Well, we can do nothing with the people at the hotel. You saw that. We'll just have to be patient until tomorrow. I'm, I'm sure I can find a room for you tonight in a pension near the embassy. You're so very kind. How can I ever thank you, Mr. Stanley? Well, you... You might begin by calling me Bruce. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Cynthia. Oh. Oh. What is it? I just thought of something. The doctor. The doctor? Yes, the one the hotel manager brought in to look after Mother. I still have his address somewhere here in my purse. Yes, here it is. Oh, we must go there immediately. He can tell us about Mother. Let me see. 24 bis Rue Val de Grasse. Well, that's not far. It's just off the Boulevard Raspain near the Luxembourg. How long would it take to get there by taxi? Oh, about ten minutes. But it... It took over an hour this afternoon. Voilà, monsieur, 24 bis Rue Val de Grasse. Well, here we are. Yes, this is the place. Attendez, mon vieux. Uh, très bien, monsieur. The house is dark. Yeah, it's quite late. Well, I don't care. We've got to find out tonight. Where is he? There at the upstairs window. Uh, Monsieur le docteur, cette mademoiselle Stanley. Elle veut vous questionner à propos de sa mère. Stanley, je ne connais pas mademoiselle Stanley. He says he doesn't know you. But he must, he must. Doctor, don't you remember this afternoon? You sent me to your house for medicine for my mother. Je ne comprends pas l'anglais. He says he doesn't understand English. Oh, the liar. The dreadful liar. He does. He speaks perfect English. I'm sorry, Cynthia. Oh, Bruce. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? If it hadn't been for Bruce... I'm certain I should have gone out of my mind. He found a room for me at a pension near the embassy, where I spent a sleepless night of anxiety, almost beyond endurance. Bruce called for me at half past ten the next morning and took me back to the hotel. To my surprise, the attitude of the manager had changed completely. Mademoiselle may inspect room 342. We are only too glad to convince Mademoiselle that her mother is not and never was in the Grand Hotel Universal. Why, I... I uh, personally will escort you to the room. This way, please, uh, to the ascenseur. Oh, Bruce, that terrible man. That horrible, Shh, horrible... Cynthia, Cynthia, don't let him upset you. Monsieur, troisième étage. Troisième, monsieur. Now remember what I told you last night, Bruce. You'll see plum-colored draperies, black marble top table, rose walls, and a gilt clock with a hand stopped at 20 minutes past three. You'll see. Yes, Cynthia. Voila, le troisième. Uh, this way, gentlemen. Uh, it was room 342. You wish to see, mademoiselle? Yes, that's right. Third door to the right. So. You see, Bruce? I know where it is. Yes, madam. Here we are. Voila. Enter, please. Now, Bruce, you shall see the yellow bedspread. 
Oh. Not quite the room you just described in the elevator, mademoiselle. The drapes are royal blue. No. Oh, a little dusty, I fear. I must have this room uh, renovated. You see, there is no marble top table. No. The clock, as you notice, is running. No. And right on time, it seems, the walls are not rose brocade, but yellow flowered wallpaper. No. No, my dear mademoiselle, you see how thoroughly mistaken you are. No, no, no. They had tried to make me think I was mad. They succeeded. I remembered nothing until I awoke in my aunt's house in England two weeks later, thanks to Bruce, who never left my side during those terrible days when my sanity hung in the balance. Well, that's the story, Alice. That's why I've never been able to talk about your grandmother Winship. Oh, Mother, how horrible. Because all these years... I've clung to the foolish hope that somehow she'd come back and tell us herself what happened. Oh, you poor dear. You may as well dispel that hope forever, Cynthia. What? Since you've at last brought yourself to discuss your mother's disappearance, I think it's time you knew the true facts. Bruce. Your mother died <gasps> 20 minutes after you left the hotel on that fool's errand for the doctor. Oh, no. She died of the bubonic plague. She'd caught it in India before she sailed. The doctor recognized the symptoms the moment he examined her. He told the hotel manager in French, in your presence. They agreed that the matter must be kept completely secret. If the news leaked out that there was a case of plague in Paris, the city would have been emptied of visitors and the exposition would have been a failure. Oh, Bruce. The conspiracy of silence began in the hotel. The bellboy was paid to claim he never saw you. The taxi driver was paid well to take you to the doctor's house by the most roundabout route. The note to the doctor's wife advised her to detain you as long as she could. And the taxi driver added his own imaginative touch by returning you to the Ritz instead of the Universal. I shudder to think what might have happened if I hadn't come through the Place Vendôme just then. But you didn't know. Not then. When did you find out? Next morning. By then, the conspiracy had grown to international proportions. The embassy had been advised. If the exposition was a failure, the franc would fall, the pound sterling would be affected, that sort of thing. I knew when we went back to the hotel, you would not find your plum drapes and rose-colored walls and black marble top table. And you let me go through with that? What, what could I do? I was acting under orders. I knew that the hotel had completely fumigated and redecorated the room overnight, and everything was in readiness to repudiate your story. I had to let the last act of the dreadful farce play to its dreadful end. Mother. What did they do with Mother? Her body was removed from the room less than 30 minutes after you left it. And immediately burned. Why? Why didn't you tell me this years ago? Why did you let me go on all this, this... time? This is the first time you have ever mentioned your mother since then, my dear. Alice... Yes, Mother. There's a new issue of the Tatler in the library, dear. Wouldn't you like to look at it? But, Mother, I want to... Now, dear. Want to have a talk with your father.
Escape, produced and directed by William N. Robeson, has brought you The Vanishing Lady by Alexander Wolcott. Adapted for radio by Mr. Robeson. Cynthia was played by Joan Banks. Bruce was played by I Aberback. The hotel manager and cab driver were played by Ramsey Hill. The musical score was conceived and conducted by Cy Fewer. Next week... You are deathly afraid of snakes. And between you and a fortune, between you and escape, beyond the white jaws of a deadly cotton mouth. Next week, we escape with Irvin S. Cobb's famous story, Snake Doctor. Good night, then, until this same time next week. But again, we offer you Escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense. This is your host, John Hagedorn. We try to alternate weeks with two episodes of Escape one week, followed by two episodes of Suspense the following week. New episodes of 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense are available every Sunday at noon Eastern Time. We always appreciate reviews. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.